0: Um, John's going to be preaching this morning, and uh, I just want uh, to remind those of you who have been coming, and to let those of you who who haven't been here know, uh, that we're in the midst of a preaching series on the Book of Numbers. And uh, part of the reason why we're preaching on the Book of Numbers is uh, that it's actually really appropriate for the season of Lent. Um, During the Book of Numbers, uh, the people of Israel are in the wilderness, being tested for 40 years. And we learned last week that they, they really all failed the test. Even Moses himself was not considered worthy of entering the promised land, and uh, they had to wait for the next generation to go in. Um, but it's, it, So it's appropriate because in Lent we, we do 40 days of fasting, which also uh, is connected with Jesus' um, 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Of course, Jesus did pass the test. Um, the other reason why, um, why we really wanted to do this series is because... Um, And it's really, that it's not just a general series on numbers. The series is difficult passages in the book of Numbers. And we've been looking at some really existentially troubling passages, and we'll continue to do that for the next couple of weeks. And part of the reason why we're doing that is because um, we want people to have a chance to wrestle with these kind of passages in the midst of the body of Christ, not just on their own in their prayer closet. What do we do with this passage that talks about a woman accused of adultery, you know, drinking this, like, dirty water in the tabernacle? Or what do we do with the command to destroy the Midianites? Or what do we do with this confusing passage of Balaam, who seems like sometimes he's following the Lord, sometimes he's not, which John is going to be preaching on today? Um, And so we, we thought it would be good to bring these things to the body and to be wrestling with them together. And part of what's going on there, too, is us recognizing that even though there might be some more cultural distance for us between us and the book of Numbers than, than there might be in the, you know for us in the Gospels or us in Paul's letters or some of the New Testament writings, that we want to uphold this as God's word and say that God's word has something to say to us today, that the book of Numbers has something to say to us today, not just to Israel back then. So understood in context. So John is going to come up here and bring the word for us this morning. Pray with me,
1: Father God. I pray that you give us humility this morning before your word, Lord. That as we come to this difficult passage, that we wouldn't um, be tempted to judge it um, or um, or put ourselves over it. But Lord, that we would sit under your word as faithful disciples. That we would listen. That we would listen for your voice and um, for what you're saying to us through it this morning. I pray, Lord, that this word this complex and troubling and weird word of Balaam would speak to us and help us in our relationships with you. Mm -hmm. Please speak to us loud and clear, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so Balaam. This story definitely (laughs) qualifies as difficult. It's kind of a delightful story, but it's definitely difficult. And not so much because it's theologically difficult, like some of the other things we've done so far, but mostly because it's just plain weird. (laughs) And the talking donkey is just the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) So what I want to do this time, and this isn't always what we do, but what I want to do this time is to start by looking at what the rest of the Bible has to say about Balaam. Because there's a good rule of thumb when you want to understand the Bible that the church has used for centuries, and it's this. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's a very important rule. And what that means is that when we come to the Bible and we don't understand something, and we feel like we need help, the first place to go is to other parts of the Bible itself. Because we believe that it's one word that God's given us, and that Scripture sheds light on itself. Okay, in the case of Balaam, this is a good example of this, because uh, Balaam comes up another four times in four different books of the Old Testament, and in three books of the New Testament. And in every single case... He's portrayed negatively. He's portrayed negatively. So uh, we read that passage from 2 Peter, and that is a perfect example. Okay? So in that passage, um, Peter is talking about a very dangerous kind of person. Peter's least favorite kind of person. The false prophet in 2 Peter that we read. And Peter's example of this dangerous kind of person is Balaam. Balaam, son of Baal. So that shows us what we should make of this story before we launch into it. The, the Bible unilaterally says that Balaam is a dangerous person, a person to be avoided. He is an enemy of God. He is an example of how not to relate to God. All right? And we need to keep that in our minds as we go through Balaam's story. Now, his story is in uh, Numbers 22 through 24. And uh, I sent out an email to some of you earlier to say, bring your Bibles this week. There's more in this story than we could have printed in the leaflet. Um, So if you have the leaflet, that's better than nothing. But if you have your Bibles, that's even better. (laughs) Numbers 22. Um, So what I'm going to do is fly over the whole of Balaam's story in those three chapters so that we can be on the same page. Balaam's story comes at the end of Israel's wilderness story. So Israel has been in the wilderness 40 years. It's now 40 years since they heard God speak to them from Mount Sinai. And almost everyone who actually crossed the Red Sea is dead. And this is when Balaam enters. So right at the end of their wilderness journey, the Lord's been leading them through the wilderness for 40 years. And right at the end, he leads them up the eastern side of the Dead Sea, up the east of the uh, River Jordan and brings them to a campsite called the Plains of Moab. And the Plains of Moab is the last campsite before they launch their conquest of the Promised Land. And it's here on the Plains of Moab that Moses delivers his last great sermon, which is the, contained in the book of Deuteronomy. And I will not be as long as that today. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's a very important place, and it's Moses's last stop, because he never makes it across the Jordan into the Promised Land. Now, on the way up to the plains of Moab, Israel has to fight two battles. So first, it defeats Sihon and the Amorites, and then it defeats Og and Bashan. Those two little battles. And they are like two little tremors before the great earthquake of the conquest, which is about to follow when they take the whole land. But those two battles are hardly talked about in the Bible. They're just little footnotes. Um, They're like little tremors before the big conquest. But... It's enough to get King Balak nervous because he is the king of the Moabites and they're another um, country that's on that eastern side near um, the Amorites and Bashan. And so that's where the story begins with King Balak seeing this enormous camp of Israelites laid out before him and getting very nervous. Poor King Balak. He looks out and he sees that this situation is very serious and, uh, and he needs a cunning military strategy. So this is the time where he's going to pull out the big guns. Whatever he has, he's going to throw at Israel. And what he decides to throw at them is a curse. <laughs> a curse. But no one in Moab had the power to curse Israel. So what Balak decided to do is to send out for a prophet from another country, a prophet called Balaam. And he lived in a place called Pathor, which was 400 miles away, up north of Moab uh, on the Euphrates River. 400 miles he had to go for a prophet who could curse Israel. <laughs> now think how far that is. I mean, that's pretty far if you're just traveling on uh, the interstates. But if you have to ride on camels and horses, how far 400 miles is. So we realized that Balaam, was he must have been a really famous guy mm-hmm. for uh, Balak to have heard of him. Uh, And he he was famous for being able to bless and curse people. He was a sort of religious celebrity. Um, So he was a pagan prophet, what they call a seer. Um, And he was known to have a special uh, spiritual power. And Balaam, unlike the prophets of Israel, could be hired for money. You could pay him to bless and curse people. Uh, So he's kind of like a spiritual hitman in this (laughs) story. Okay, so Balaam sends princes to Balaam, the uh, pagan prophet, and he sends lots of precious gifts, and he asks him to come and curse Israel. But Balaam says, wait here, I'm going to go and ask God first. So Balaam goes to ask God if he should go and curse Israel, and God clearly tells him, verse 12, You shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And this first time, Balaam listens to God, and he sends the princes home. But Balak isn't satisfied, and he tries again. He sends more princes and more gifts, and he asks Balaam to come and curse Israel. So Balaam goes back again to God. And this time, in verse 20, God gives him a different answer. Verse 20 says, And God came to Balaam at night, and said, If the men have come to call you, rise, rise. Go with them, but only do what I tell you. Very interesting. So, the second time, Balaam did go with the princes. And then in verse 22, it says that God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So God stood as Balaam's enemy, as an angel. But Balaam didn't see the angel. And his donkey did. Right? So, three times the donkey swerves or drops down to avoid the angel. And three times Balaam, who doesn't see the angel, gets frustrated and strikes out at the donkey for swerving off the road. <gasps> and then at last, God let the donkey speak up and defend herself. And she said, as Bev so delightfully did, can't do it as well as Bev, <laughs> why have you beaten me these three times? <laughs> Um, And then God finally let Balaam see the angel uh, that the donkey had been avoiding. So Balaam falls down on his face in terror. But, if you keep reading, which is actually printed, he still keeps going with his journey. So on he goes, and finally he meets King Balak, the guy who's wanted to see him for so long. And Balak took him up a high mountain to see the people of Israel so that Balaam could curse them. And three times, if you read through the story in Numbers 23 and 24, three times they build an altar and they offer sacrifices and they get ready to curse Israel. And three times Balaam blessed the people of Israel instead of cursing them. So King Balak gets pretty frustrated with Balaam. (laughs) And in verse 10 of chapter 24, we read, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he struck his hands together and said, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you have blessed them these three times. And in that verse, there are lots of echoes of um, the interaction that we've just read about between Balaam and his own donkey. So there's language that overlaps. So in the donkey episode, God's anger is kindled against Balaam. And then in this um, cursing episode, Balak's anger is kindled against Balaam. Same word. And then um, Balaam struck his donkey in frustration, and Balak struck his hands together in frustration. Same word. And then uh, uh, Balak accuses Balaam of offending him these three times, which is exactly what the donkey had said. Okay, so the two men are failing, failing, failing to curse Israel, and eventually King Balak sends Balaam home, but he has uh, one more ace up his sleeve, and he has a final fourth oracle which says that Israel will crush the forehead of Moab. (laughs) This guy really knows how to win friends and (laughs) influence. So that's the whole story of Balaam in a nutshell, and it's very weird. And I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of the story of Balaam, I actually, I mean, I end up feeling pretty sorry for the guy, because everybody's mad at him, right? God is mad at him, King Balak is mad at him, even his donkey's mad at you. <laughs> but it seems to me like, as you read through this, that Balaam did his best. Right? So at every point, he asks God what he should do. And God tells him, and he does it. He does exactly what God says. And he says things like though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord. Right? right. Pretty reasonable. That sounds like something that a believer would say. And then Balaam never pretends that he's going to do anything other than what he does. He's completely honest with King Balak all the way through. He says at their first meeting, Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And that's what he does speak. What came out of Balaam's mouth was a blessing over Israel, not a curse. It was a word straight from the living God. So Balaam did what God wanted, right? He did what God wanted. So my question when I come to this passage is, why does the New Testament give Balaam such a hard time? Because on the face of it, he just looks like an honest guy who's trying to make the best of a very confusing set of circumstances and some pretty conflicting messages. And uh, I think this puzzle is what qualifies this story for a sermon series on difficult passages (laughs) in the book of (laughs) Numbers. And I think the key to the puzzle is that though Balaam might look really good on the outside, and though he might look innocent on the outside, it's not the outward appearance that God looks at. Because God looks into the heart. And what God found in Balaam's heart was wickedness. And if we look closely at the text, we can see the evidence for that. So let's take you through that So, first, Balaam was a man who thought he could manipulate God. Um, The verbs for what he does in communicating with God are of pagan ritual. So, he's a guy who practices divination and he's a guy who uses omens in his communication with God. The pagan rituals, which is part of the whole system of pagan religion, which is not really serving God, is really trying to manipulate God to do what you want. So Balaam doesn't really want to be God's servant. He really wants to be God's master. He wants God to serve him. And he wants to manipulate God's power for his own profit. So the second thing about Balaam is he's clearly a lover of money. He loves money. So when the princes first come to him, God gives him a very clear and definite answer. You know, I have blessed these people. You can't curse them. That's very clear and definite. Very unambiguous. And, uh, and then the princes go home and the only thing that changes the second time is that they come back with more money.
2: Mm-hmm. We're going
1: to give you more money, more honour. And Balaam thinks, well, I'll just go ask God again. <laughs> <laughs> but why would he ask God again? Is God's answer going to change because they're offering more money? Is God going to say, oh, what, how much?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you better go ahead and curse them. <laughs>
1: You know, in the fact that he goes back a second time to ask God, we see that Balaam doesn't really love the word of God. He doesn't really love what God's already told him. He really loves the money. He really wants to go with the princes. And so when God speaks to him, God speaks a word that lets him follow his own heart. That lets him follow his own heart for money and Mm. not for God's word. So, the words that Peter speak over him are evident in this text. Peter said that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. And that's right, isn't it, when we read it? That's what he really loved. And the third thing that's clear is that Balaam hated God's people. He hated God's people. Hmm. So, he stood up and he wasn't able to curse the Israelites. But when you read on in in Numbers, he's mentioned again before the end of Numbers, in chapter 31... And we read that what Balaam did before he left was to counsel King Balak to send Moabite women into the Israelite camp to seduce the Israelites into into intermarriage and idolatry. Because Balaam knew that that would cause God's anger to break out against Israel. So Balaam hated God's people. And his wicked scheme of sending out the Moabite women into the camp ended up with God sending a plague on Israel that killed 24,000 people. So Balaam hated God's people and he tried to destroy them. And that's the wickedness that God saw when he looked into Balaam's heart. That Balaam thought that he could manipulate God, that Balaam loved money more than God's word, and that Balaam hated God's people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that's why when we come into the New Testament and read that passage from 2 Peter, that the language is so strong in that 2 Peter passage. Um, And it's warning the church about false prophets. And Peter chooses Balaam as his example. As his example of that false prophet. And Peter says of false prophets that they are people who want to manipulate God and twist his word. They are greedy for gain. And they lead people into sexual sin. You can find all those things in 2 Peter. And if you see those characteristics, someone who wants to manipulate and twist God's word, someone who's greedy for gain, and someone who leads people into sexual sin, you know that you have a false prophet right there. You have a false prophet. You've got another Balaam who's an enemy of God and a threat to God's people. So that's what Balaam's like. And I want to look now at what God did about Balaam. How did he handle him? What did he do with Balaam? And I think the remarkable thing is that God showed Balaam an amazing amount of mercy. There is so much mercy in this passage. But even in the face of all this mercy from God, Balaam persisted in his madness. And so in the end, God gave him over to his
2: foolishness.
1: Mm -hmm. So I want to briefly unpack those three ideas of mercy and madness and foolishness. So let's look at God's mercy in this passage. What's amazing is that Balaam is a pagan prophet with no connection with Israel, and the living God is speaking to him. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that when he hears the word of the Lord that that is really God. That's really the living God. And so God, in his mercy, is actually speaking to Balaam, God's giving Balaam his true and life-giving word, even though Balaam himself is such an unworthy recipient of it, and that is pure mercy. And then Balaam tested the boundaries of that word and went on the journey against what God said. And what did God do? Smite him down? No, He sent an angel to stand in His way once again to make it emphatically clear. That this was not God's will. And then when Balaam didn't even see the angel, he let the donkey see it. (laughs) And let the donkey stop um, Balaam from his foolish errand. Pure mercy. And then, even more, God opened the donkey's mouth. God wants to teach Balaam a lesson in good sense. And there's no one else around to teach it, but it's a donkey. <laughs> and so God's like, all right. <laughs> but this donkey tell him, yet another chance to turn around, to stop in the way that you're going and repent and turn back. Another way that God is showing mercy to Balaam. And then the final way is that even when Balaam stands on the mountain and opens his mouth to curse Israel, God turns Balaam's curse into a blessing. And that's what God says he does. In Deuteronomy 23, he's, Moses is speaking to Israel. And Moses says, the Lord God turned Balaam's curse into a blessing. Mm. And I think what that means is that it's literal. Because <laughs> when you look at how much Balaam hated Israel, he was never going to bless Israel of his own choice. So I believe what he did is stood up to curse. And as the words were coming out of his mouth, God turned the curse into a blessing. And so that too was mercy because God was sparing Balaam from committing such a great sin as blessing what God had sorry as cursing what God had blessed. So God dealt with Balaam over and over again with remarkable mercy. But second, Balaam persisted in his madness. So we've talked about how going back to God to ask a second time was just madness. And then the donkey saves his life by falling over and going off the road at those times. And he threatens to kill the donkey. And that's just madness. And he sees the angel. Okay, I love this thing. He sees the angel, and the angel's got this sword. He's standing in the way. And these are Balaam's words after he sees the angel. If it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. If it's evil, if it's evil in your sight, that angel standing there with a sword ready to kill him for what he's doing. And he's still wondering whether it's a good idea. So to continue on that journey is pure madness. And then to get as far as seeing Israel, the people that God's told him he was blessing, and the people that God has tried to prevent him from cursing, and to still go ahead and try and curse them, is utter madness. So God offered Balaam mercy, but Balaam persisted in his madness. And in the end, there's no repentance for Balaam. And God hands him over to his own foolishness. So in this story of Balaam, what we have of him in this record of uh, Numbers 22-24, it's a portrait of just a great fool, isn't it? It's a man who looks ridiculous. And that is his legacy, is a man who's just given over to great folly. So here's some ways, that that's evident in the text. So Balaam calls himself a seer, but he's completely unable to see. He can't see the angel, and even his donkey can see it. Balaam is a thug. He abuses a witness creature who is saving his life. The donkey speaks, and he says, I'm ready to kill you with my sword. He's just a thug. He's a prophet who thinks that he can manipulate God, but ends up being completely under God's power. He looks so foolish for trying to stand up against God. He's a hater of God's people and he becomes the instrument of their blessing. And he's a lover of money who really wants to do the job he's being paid to do. And over and over he can't do it. <laughs> he just comes over as an utter fool. And, um, and so the, the narrator of this story draws strong par- parallels between Balaam and his own donkey. The language we've already talked about. About how, um, the, okay, so here's some things. Three times, the donkey does something other than it's being commanded to do, because the Lord is preventing it. And three times, Balaam does something other than what he's being commanded to do, because the Lord is preventing it. And in both cases, the employer responds with intense frustration, because he can't get the kind of service that he's expecting. In both cases, the Lord opens the eyes of the servant, Balaam's oracles say several times that God has opened my eyes. And in both cases, God directly puts words into the mouth of the servant, which surprise the employer. So Balaam's relationship to King Balak is paralleled with the donkey's relationship to (laughs) Balaam. Okay, so in the end, Balaam's madness turns him into a witless mouthpiece of God's words. So when we read this uh, story, something that comes forward is that God's words to Balaam can seem pretty confusing. So uh, we can read this and think, oh, I wouldn't know what to do in this situation. God's saying this and he's saying this. But actually, what's going on is that God's treatment of Balaam is extremely brilliant. It's extremely wise. Because God handles Balaam in a way that exposes the inconsistency of his own heart Mm -hmm. that allows him to behave in line with what he really loves and not with the sort of false pretense that he's put over. God treats Balaam in a way that consistently shows him mercy and gives him over and over a chance to repent. Um, God treats Balaam in a way that allows his own foolishness to condemn him. So that by the end of the story, it's evident that he is a person that should come under God's judgment. And so God, in the way that he treats Balaam, is proven good and powerful and wise. That everything he did was to handle this situation perfectly. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now that can all seem quite distant from where we are this morning. So I want to um, try and bring home three lessons from the story of Balaam. And the first is from this idea that God is merciful even to his worst enemies. That Balaam was probably very high on the list of the worst enemies of God and his people that have ever lived. And that we saw God's interaction with Balaam to be mercy after mercy. He gave him lots of chances to turn around to turn back from the way he was going. So I want to think, who today... Other people who are listed among the worst enemies of God and His people. Who are those people today?
2: Mm.
1: Maybe they're terrorists who are beheading Christians in other countries. Maybe they're political leaders in other countries who are persecuting the church, trying to stamp it out of existence. Maybe they're leaders within the church itself who are teaching wrong things about Jesus and the gospel. Maybe they're public figures who don't claim to be Christians and are denying the existence of God himself. The enemies of God. And these people are doing terrible things. But they have not fled from God's love, have they? And they have not sinned themselves outside of his mercy. If Balaam can find mercy from God, then who will not find mercy? God is merciful even to his worst enemies. And he answers their hatred with kindness. And Jesus calls us to be the same kind of people, to have that same attitude to the enemies of God. What did he say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. For this is the will of God. That is what God is like. And that is what we must be like. So I'd like to think about putting that into practice this week. And to think of someone who just really makes you angry. Because there's so much an enmity of God and his people. that they are working so much wickedness in this world. And to think of that person. And to deliberately take uh, the discipline up this week of praying for them. Of praying for them. Of praying for God's mercy over them. And to pray that unlike Balaam, that they would come to their senses that they would see what God is doing, and that they would see how mad they are being, and that they would come to their senses and turn around. That somebody who's alive today would turn and not be like Balaam. Now here's the second thing. Sometimes what we see as a problem is actually a protection, is actually God's protection. So we're thinking now about the situation of Balaam and his donkey. He was angry and humiliated at the behavior of his donkey. And uh, in the ancient world, this was like getting three flat tires on one afternoon. <laughs> uh, very frustrating. But the donkey was actually saving Balaam's life. If the donkey had not stopped, the angel would have killed him. And I think that's a good lesson for us, because we all face situations every day that frustrate us and hold us back. <clears throat> And then things like sickness or unexpected delays in the traffic or computers that suddenly get that blue screen of death on the morning of your big presentation. And it's easy to let those things annoy us and make us angry. But what if God allows those kind of things from time to time for our protection? Because God knows things and He sees things that we don't see. If then we get angry at those frustrations, we look pretty foolish, don't we? We look like Balaam beating his donkey with a stick. So let's assume that God might be showing us mercy in those frustrating moments. Instead of assuming that He's just forgetting about us, that He's showing us mercy, that He's protecting us. Because Balaam helps us see that sometimes things that look like problems are actually protections. Sometimes interruptions are opportunities. And wise children of God will accept them with patience and ask God what he wants to accomplish through them. We should ask God for eyes to see what he is doing. Alright, and then there's one more thing. The last thing. This is a bright hope in the story of Balaam. It's the hope that God is for his people. And that God is really good at taking a curse and turning it into a blessing. Sure. Okay. So the last word of, Roman, of uh, Numbers uh, 23, uh, 24 is um, that God speaks a blessing over his people even despite the wickedness of King Balak and even despite the wickedness of Balaam. So God does here what he promised to do in Romans 8, which is to work all things together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. So here's the recipe God put together. A wicked king, Balak, a false prophet, and a talking donkey. Mix it all together, and you get a perfect recipe for blessing for God's people. And look, he did that again, didn't he? Because when it came to Jesus' trial, God took wicked King Herod, and cowardly Governor Pilate, And a corrupt set of Pharisees. And he put them together and made a recipe for blessing the whole world. So God says he turned Balaam's curse into a blessing for his people. And that's exactly what he did on Calvary. He turned a sum of curses into a blessing for his people. He turned Pilate's cowardice into a blessing for his people. He turned the shouts of crucify him into a blessing For the whole world. And Jesus hung on a tree for us. And Paul says he became a curse for us. Because cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. And God took that curse. And he turned it into a blessing. A blessing that would bless his people over and over and over again. A blessing of life and forgiveness and reconciliation for all of us. So in his sovereign power... God turned a curse into a blessing, and that's something that he promises to do again and again. God will protect his people. He will bring them good, even through the very schemes of their worst enemies. So our enemies may be strong, but our God is stronger. So we see that deeply embedded in this strange and curious little story of Balaam, is a lasting message of hope for God's people. Because if God is for us, then who, who can stand against us? Let's pray. Father, I pray that this story of Balaam would give our hearts sobriety, give us pause and caution, That we would see in him the kind of folly that the human heart is capable of. That it would drive us to you to accept your mercy for us. Mm -hmm. And I pray, Lord, that this story of Bain would give us hope. Give us hope that the worst of what comes at us through this world, through sin, the flesh, and the devil, is not stronger than you. Please, Lord, fill us with that hope. If we attempted to despair this morning, feeling like the tides of evil in this world are overwhelming us, fill us with that hope that you can turn those things into a blessing. That you can take the worst of what Christians face and make it resound in blessing for the whole world. You are the transforming God, and we praise you and we bless you. In Jesus' name.